0: to butter with that a movies podcast where some friends from philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies i am joined today by sam dave and christine and we are in the thick of it of musicals to be specific uh we have talked about magic month previously and now which i think you know musical month has sort of been a nice you know there's some connections between magical movies and musicals so it's been fun to sort of think about those connections Uh, I think that's one of the fun parts of doing our theme format and so we will definitely probably getting into some of those maybe magical elements of the film we're talking about today but before we get into one of my personal favorite movies of all time uh, let's do a quick check-in how's everybody feeling has anybody seen anything recently Uh, I know some of us are trying to catch up on 2021 films so maybe some updates there well I saw a 2022 film. Um,
1: so not quite applying to that category, but I did go to the uh, ventured out to the theaters instead of seeing uh, jockey, uh, which is a movie that I, I think actually has gotten some pretty glowing reviews and I'm really curious about. I uh, I decided against that and instead went to go see Scream 5 or just Scream uh, as it's been uh, returned because uh, as we learned in the movie, it is a requill. So you're going to learn about that if you see the movie. Um, I uh, I did not care for it. I thought it was, uh, it was not great. It felt a little bit like, you know, Scream has always been very a very meta franchise and always referential of other horror movies to the point that occasionally some of them are named. Uh, this felt like wading through a sea of re- movie title references, which became pretty exhausting. Uh, it made me go back and uh, reevaluate Scream 4, which I actually kind of like a lot more now, <laughs> strangely enough. So um, so yeah, I, I would shuffle it in at, at number four in the franchise, uh, just above Scream 3. But uh, I, I do have a deeper appreciation for four now, which I didn't expect would happen.
0: I kind of like Scream 4. I think that, I think it has uh, some stuff going for it. I haven't seen, I've seen the first two the most, but I, I've only seen four once. So I'm kind of sad that you're disappointed in the new one. Uh, I'll check it out whenever it hits streaming. Uh, just because I love the franchise, but going it's with... Um, the watch.
1: It, it does some cool things, too, with Ghostface that haven't been done in the franchise before, which is pretty fun. But, uh, yeah, on the whole, it is what it is. But check it out. Cool. Anybody else?
2: Well, I had never seen Scream until I think the past year or maybe a year and a half. And I watched it, and I had no idea what was... Go- I was so surprised... It was like the best movie I'd ever seen in my life, <laughs> and I couldn't believe that like I I didn't know what to expect at the end because it's such a embedded part of like m- movie lore. Uh, but I yeah I mean I knew what happens to Drew at the beginning, but aside from that I was I was on the edge of my seat. Uh, I have no 2021 movies to report, but I do have a 1947 movie to report. Uh,
1: (laughs) I watched
2: the, (laughs) I watched the original Nightmare Alley in preparation for uh, seeing Guillermo del Toro's new Nightmare Alley remake. Uh, And it was, it was good. It is pretty uh, terrifying not quite visually terrifying. I, I was kind of expected, I, I expected there'd be more sort of visual terror, but there's some cool things with shadow and lighting. It's more sort of psychological terror and interesting intersections of uh, mentalism and uh, uh, psychoanalysis and like some really, really cool directions and we goes, that I wasn't really expecting. And so I'm really excited to see the new one, because I've, yeah, I've read that he ch- he takes, makes some choice, Del Toro makes some different types of choices, and I feel like I can predict what he might do that the original didn't, but yeah, the original was definitely uh, a cool one to check out.
0: I saw that the new one just got added to HBO Max, so even though know, that movie came out in December, now it's on HBO, so I will most definitely check out the new one.
3: Um to keep the scream theme alive, I read a I read a book, and I know this is a movie pang yeah, but, Um I read a book called There's Someone Inside of Your Home. And this had come recommended to me through TikTok and through some other things. And it's supposed to be like really scary. And I know that they actually like made a film version of it. It's on Netflix. And um I was like, yes, I'm so like looking forward to something that's actually going to scare me as I'm reading it. And as I was reading it, I wasn't like really scared. It certainly was creepy, but it reminded me of Scream in so many ways. It's set in this high school in so in in Nebraska, and um, these teens just end up being murdered. And like you're reading a little bit of it, and the kid, they're like they're. There's possibly this person's the killer. It could be the boyfriend. It could be this. And I was so excited for them to like, to do a scream. I was like, yeah, they didn't. Um, And uh, the book was not good. So uh, I am going to watch the movie to see if they like made different choices to make it a little bit better. But I was really bummed because like, you know, when you, when you're into a book and you read it and you read it so fast, like I'm a pretty f- quick reader, um, when I like something. So I read it almost in a day and, uh, I started to peter out towards the end. Cause I was like, they're not, it's not that they didn't like do the scream take. Cause like, you know, they didn't have to, they just had to make it good. And they didn't.
0: I love that review of a book. They just had to make it good, but they didn't. <laughs> it's like a great summation of it. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's interesting to like a book to try to scare you. is like an interesting thing to try to do. I was, this is a, just a total tangent from movies, I guess, but I was an intern at a theater in college and they were doing the woman in black, which was turned into a movie with Tina Radcliffe and the play, which is like one of the longest running plays in England on the West end was like terrifying. Cause I was like reading it in this like fluorescent office, like this play script. Um, so that was uh, just reminded me, your story about being scared while reading or attempting to be scared.
2: I'm trying to think like the last book that scared me, but that's really, I'm going to think about that one.
1: House of Leaves by Mark uh, Z. Danielewski has some pretty scary moments.
2: I'm going to write
3: that down, write it down. Um, The last one I read was, um, oh my God, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and that's because obviously it's about the Golden State Killer, so that was real life. That's terrifying. (laughs)
0: I bet in an alternate universe, there's a podcast for the four of us called Bindings with that. We're binding with that. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't want butter near your books. All right. Well, thanks for those updates, gang. Um, let's dive into my pick for, m- not magic, musical month, and that is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, the 1971 classic directed by Mel Stewart with a uh, screenplay by, I can never pronounce his name, Roland. Roland Roald Dahl? Roald Dahl? Roald Dahl, is that how you pronounce it? Rold Dahl, who wrote the, the book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, we'll, you know, toward the end kind of talk about how he felt about this iconic film. Um, when we were sort of thinking about different themes at the start of 2021, um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was a movie that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. So, oh, this could be like a fun pick for musical month because there are so many movies like Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory that aren't like technically like musicals, like you would find on a stage, but they're movies with musical moments in them with songs in them. There's so many movies uh, that are kind of similar to this in the idea of, Hey, we got some songs. We got a movie. Let's put them in. Even though the story doesn't call for songs, but we're still putting them in anyway. And so I think this is, one of my favorite movies of all time. This was on, I've probably seen this 20 or 30 times throughout my life. Uh, and in one week, this was uh, last year, we, uh, my wife and I watched it twice uh, in one week. And it was on Netflix. So this is definitely a movie I'm very familiar with. Uh, I'm really excited to dive deep into it. Uh, the music was by Leslie uh, Bershusi and Anthony Newley. And it stars uh, one of the greatest actors of the 20th century, Gene Wilder. Um, Jack Albertson as Jack, Peter Ostrom, um, and Roy Kinnear, uh, it had a budget of 3 million and a box office of only 4 million. So not really a success in the theatrical release, but I'm sure this movie turned a profit through uh, home video and syndication. So this movie, while not a box office success has definitely left its mark. Uh, in pop culture, and even in the 21st century through uh, some memes. And I feel like this is a film I see talked about on the internet quite a bit. Like, every few months it pops up where someone's, like, has a hot take about a scene on Twitter. So this is definitely, I think, a film that has lived in the public consciousness uh, since 1971, which uh, is pretty impressive. Has anybody, was this anybody's first time watching Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Not the sequel with Johnny Depp, which we won't talk about in this episode.
3: (laughs) We have to because, I know, know, I'm sorry, because I made the mistake. I was like, yeah, I've seen Willy Wonka. No, turns out I have only seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So when I was watching it for the podcast, I was like, this is entirely new to me. So, uh, yes, I have now seen it for the first time.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I have seen uh, both. I uh, I think the Burton version's fine, but um, this one is uh, yeah pretty beloved. So nice to go back to.
2: Yeah, I've I like you, Connor. I've seen this um a bajillion times, and feel like I got into yeah probably every. I think when I was much younger, I watched it a ton, and then I I watched it maybe like five years ago when it was on TV, and then watched it recently just because i mean for the podcast and i'm always reminded every time i watch it how much i love this movie
0: (laughs) well it sounds like you're gonna have some interesting perspectives Uh, this movie really resonates with me as a film that i feel like i've grown up with that as a kid i can appreciate it on some basic levels because it is based off of a kid's book Uh, It was a movie designed for children, but I feel like as I got older and understood the world a little more and also the process of making movies, this film just became so much more interesting um, and, richer. and I feel like every time I watch it, I pick up one or two new little details. And it was fun. It's fun picking up, you know, also kind of scary picking a favorite movie for the podcast. Because like, oh, I hope everybody likes it. I hope we have a good discussion. Um, but it was fun sort of bringing a more critical eye to it, which I've never really done before. And noticing all sorts of little details of production design, editing, the way, you know, scenes are set up, characterization, etc. Uh, so, for those who are unfamiliar with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, here's just a brief synopsis off the top of my head. Uh, Charlie Bucket is a poor little kid. Uh, he lives with um, in a multi generational home where all of his grandparents share a bed together. Uh, he has a newspaper route. His mom works really hard doing uh, like laundry, and Trish, you know, they the Bucket family's trying to get by. Uh, until Charlie's life has changed forever when Willy Wonka, this mysterious uh, chocolatier, Candyman is starting to do a different Candyman than film
1: series. <laughs> Say Willy
0: Wonka three times in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and so Willy Wonka has a contest, a golden ticket contest, which probably most folks are familiar with kind of that phrase where five people, random people around the world, will get a tour of his factory and a lifetime supply of chocolate. Uh, the world goes into absolute hysteria. Uh, Charlie Bucket finds the final golden ticket, and him, his grandpa Joe, and four other children uh, go into the factory, and we'll discuss their fates when we get to that in the, to the plot breakdown. All right, so let's dive in. So I just said at the top that this isn't really a musical, but Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory does incorporate a lot of elements from musical theater, from, you know, sort of um, classic movie musicals. Uh, And it opens with an overture playing over the montage of chocolate candy being made. Uh, This film is just so interesting because this feels like a segment out of how it's made on the Discovery Channel or like some sort of like industrial film about how a factory makes chocolate. And I think this is just such a wonderful way to bring audiences into the world. Really makes me hungry every time you see the like Hershey Kisses or whatever they're being made and just chocolate overflowing all these machines. Uh, And of course, we get uh, I have a golden ticket. Other songs throughout it as an overture to sort of warm the audience up. So any sort of thoughts on this opening sequence right away, just the first like 30 seconds of the movie?
3: It reminded me so much of Chocolate World at Hershey Park, and that is so, so amazing. I love that ride, Um, if you can even call it a ride, but it's just like, it's one of those things that's like a staple, and you're like, yes, Chocolate World. Um, You know, you see the the cows, the singing cows as you go by, so even though this was like my first time watching it, and I was kind of surprised by what I was seeing, um, it still made me nostalgic in a way.
1: It's kind of great too that it's sort of. I mean, it, it makes it look impressive. This, this machinery and like the technical uh, know-how and crap that goes into making these chocolate bars and like almost like Hershey Kisses and things, yeah. But it also is. It's like a little bit. It, it keeps at bay like what we can expect because it's like, oh, the, Charlie in the chocolate factory or Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. We're gonna we're gonna see him make chocolate, and then he has this whole world made of candy eventually. So it's a nice fake out. Mm-hmm. while still setting the tone
0: yeah it's like sam i love you were like shaking your fist like yeah tapping into that childhood energy of just like desire for sweets desire for chocolate something that just looks so exciting and it's a bait and switch with what the factory is actually like so we got our opening overture there we're all set up we're ready to go and then we jump to a candy store and we get the first song of the film the candy man Can. Uh, The store owner, who's played by Aubrey Woods, uh, proclaims how wonderful Wonka is and how he brightens up the whole world and he gives scores of free candy to all the children in the store. So this is our first song. So we got the overture and then right away we're jumping into the candy man can Um, watching it this time. I'm like, wow, he's just giving away. Just in today's currency, probably hundreds of dollars worth of candy to all these kids, just from how excited he is about how happy candy makes kids. Uh, So thoughts on our first, just right away, jumping into a song, kind of thoughts on how the movie kind of opens this way, too.
3: I feel like that's how you know you are an adult, like, and that you have aged. that your big concern is, how is he paying for this candy? (laughs) Because that's all I could think about. Who's footing this bill?
1: Yeah, love as a first establishing song that it establishes how magical chocolate and candy are as a presence in this world. That it's it's sort of like you know it's inherently uplifting that it's being made and that this mysterious man is making it. Really cool way to uh, to set the scene for us. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I I feel like we'll get more into this if in other numbers and other scenes. But I think something that this movie does unbelievably well is mixed this tone of playfulness and kids' movie energy with songs like, you know, The Candyman Can. He brings magical treats to all the children, and there's this abundance to it, and it's amazing blending that tone with an extremely horrifying, sinister uh, edginess to it. (laughs) And I feel like with the factory open, or like the... Process shots at the beginning and then the scene in the candy store it like creates this setting of abundance and candy is wonderful and it's going to be amazing and as the movie progresses and as you get into the interior of the factory you're like this is absolutely horrifying I have no idea what Willy Wonka is thinking right now and so it like and we'll get more into that later. But I think within the, the framework of the Candy Shop song, it's still in the sort of light, um, fantastical and playful kid energy. And then slowly we'll start devolving into something <laughs>
0: scary. I'm so happy you're bringing this idea up now, Christine, because I think this movie does an excellent job of juggling very different tones, and that just makes it such a fascinating kids movie to watch as an adult, because it is, I think, incredibly optimistic and hopeful, and so incredibly sinister and just depressing of a film at the same time. Which I think, and we can talk about this as we go throughout the episode, you know, throughout the plot. Uh, but that feels a lot like adulthood to me: times where I'm incredibly feeling good, optimistic, and then other times I just feel crushed by the weight of the world. And so I think this movie is offers sort of an interesting lens to sort of view how kids can maybe process that or work through that. Speaking of hopeless and crushing, we cut to (laughs) Charlie, um, where he is staring through the window, looking inside the candy shop, but he is so poor that he cannot even receive free candy that's happening in the store. And I think that what a great juxtaposition of Charlie longingly looking into the candy store, Um, longing for what all the other kids have and wanting a better life. In a lot of ways, Charlie Bucket is kind of like a classical hero where he goes on his own little hero's journey, certainly not as tight-knit as Luke Skywalker or any other classic examples. But watching Charlie look into the candy store, looking into the factory later on uh, in a little bit does remind me of Luke staring out onto the twin sons of Tatooine at the beginning of episode four, like longing for something bigger. Um, a better life than what he has right now. There is another bucket. (laughs) There is another. (laughs) So we meet Charlie. He's a poor paper boy. He's got to work his route. He's got to make a couple pittance. He can't go inside and get any free sweets. Um, As he's going home, he passes Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. I guess this scene's happening right now uh, where a character called the Tinker tells him that nobody ever goes in and nobody ever goes out. And I guess he's a purveyor of knives and sharp objects. This character is very confusing. He only comes in once, offers this like ominous message to Charlie. And then he just, with, you know, takes his little knife cart away. And is just, I don't think he's ever seen again in the film. But right away, you know, we have this very sweet kind of children's song with a guy with a knife cart giving ominous warnings to our hero. Um, So this scene just still kind of confuses me a little bit, but I think maybe it's from the book, this character, and they just did, that's just how they decided to adapt it. But for me, I see it as just adding kind of ominousness to the world.
2: I mean, yeah, you need, because I feel like later on they use newscasters and reporting to sort of give us exposition about what's the deal with Wonka, what's the deal with his company. But yeah, the the tinker knife man, <laughs> I think also just adds to that, lore, like, setting up the lore and legend around Willy Wonka and the fact that the world hasn't seen him for years. And it's, yeah, it's
0: frightening. So after this ominous message from the tinkerer, uh, Charlie rushes home, uh, to his widowed mother and his bedridden grandparents, uh, the bucket home is just so gosh, darn sad. Um, it's this enormous bed with all of his grandparents inside of it. Um, and his mom just working as hard as she could, uh, that night, Charlie's grandpa, Joe, who becomes a Pivotal character reveals that kind of more world building that Wonka has locked up the factory for several years because rival confectioners were sending in spies to steal his secrets, Slugworth being his main rival. Uh, Wonka shut down the factory, but resumed production years later, and the gates remained locked and the original workers never returned to their jobs, leaving everybody wondering who had replaced them. So lots of mysteries are being set up right in the first 15 minutes of this film. Can you imagine buying Slugworth chocolate? (laughs) I can't even imagine what. I think they name one or two types of Slugworth chocolate or candies, but I can't remember them. Probably not something good. Thoughts on the Bucket family in this sort of initial meeting or thoughts on them in general, because I got a lot on Grandpa Joe who is a complex character, let's say, uh, in some regards. Um, so kind of thoughts on the Bucket family.
2: I mean, I love Grandpa Joe. Are you about to talk shit about Grandpa Joe? Oh.
0: We're going to talk shit on Grandpa Joe.
2: Oh, are <laughs> we? All right, fine. Um, Bucket family, uh, I, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he does have a really supportive family his mom is supportive his grandparents are supportive there's warmth in that in that home and in that family unless you're about to rain on my grandpa joe parade
0: (laughs) as we bring up a few times on the podcast multiple truths can exist
2: that's true
0: (laughs) and the bucket family is incredibly loving and supportive but man grandpa joe can be a selfish sob at times Oh, Charlie, I'm giving up my tobacco. You keep your money. No, Grandpa Joe, I want to pay for your tobacco this week, Um, which I don't think in 1971 was supposed to be viewed as kind of sinister or not. Sinister is not the right word, but Grandpa Joe, I think as I get older, rubs me more the wrong way. I feel like saying
2: that he's allowed to spend money on his tobacco, but like Charlie can't buy the chocolate that he wants. I think yeah, there's Are you saying there's imbalanced spending in the bucket family? Well they are
1: they are drinking at one point what they describe as cabbage water. So
2: yeah, maybe tobacco <laughs> yeah, could get
1: could, could, could get cut, especially if you're laying in bed all day with three other people.
2: Fine, fine. If you wanna get down to the budget, the bucket family budget, sure, I'll give you that one.
1: All right. Somebody should, it's a mess. It's very Dickensian family. I also though really appreciate some of like the semiotics and like the image system separating Charlie from those things. Connor like you mentioned the um mm-hmm. you know his distance from the candy fact, uh the candy store later his distance from the factory which is everyone's distance from it as well but it's particularly poignant with him as far as uh, imagery. So yeah, it really reads home that this family's not doing great. But yeah, as Christine has uh, suggested they're very uh supportive except for apparently that bastard grandpa Joe.
3: They all, I mean, like, this is the complexity of life, right? You can have family Mm -hmm. who are so supportive and loving and still horrifically manipulative and also, like, (laughs) definitely allowing child labor to to go on. I mean, like, we should really stop that. He should, like, really not work that hard. What are you doing to help it? And I'm not trying to be ableist in any way. I just, like... Eventually, Uncle Joe was just able to stand up. Could you imagine what you could do if you tried? Um, And also, (laughs) my roommate was like wait a minute what time frame is this so there's like cars outside but they're living in like a hut where the hell is this happening and I think you know Connor I mentioned that to you before and you were like well you know that kind of goes along to you know the 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 mystery of Wonka and and everything else so like yeah but also damn
2: they really be poor I'll also give you Connor that Grandpa Joe and I, you mentioned this too, Sam, can be emotionally manipulative. The whole, like, just buy one more bar and it's going to be this one. Like, that is a really hard thing to do to your grandkid. I, I get that. I get that.
1: Especially I'll, while his mom is trying to be like, hey, let's be realistic. You're not going to get that ticket because we can't afford one candy bar.
2: Yeah, I know. But, you know, it's kind of like a grandparent move, you know, like I just want to get like, I just want to like be there to see you so happy doing whatever thing that you want to do. But yeah, that was that was setting Charlie up for some some real uh, intense emotional feelings.
0: And what I think is fascinating is that this is just, this is not the intention of the script, but I think <laughs> what makes it such a strong movie is that the themes and the characters are so strong and poignant that it can take on, you know, death of the author can take on a life of its own and we can interpret how we want and find, I find personally find really rich meaning in this family and their relationships, even if the intention was not that at all in 1971. Anna, Sam, sorry, I think sorry.
2: you need, I think you need to edit a Buzzfeed top 10 movie villains of all time and (laughs) grandpa Joe is going to be up there
1: shock of all shocks
2: I want to know what the internet thinks about that hot take
1: (laughs) number two Anton Chigurh number one grandpa Joe Uh,
3: you know what though you would have Gen Z being like yeah fuck this guy (laughs) <laughs> um, he's the one who tells Charlie to go drink whatever this fucking shit is. So, <laughs> yeah. um, I also think that like the mark of like aging and, and becoming more mature is I felt really bad of, of the, with the, for the family too, in the sense of like, you really do just like want your child to be happy and to be hopeful. And it's hard to not be able to do that. On the other hand, okay, so you know, Charlie's dejected. Oh, uh, yes, they already found the other ticket. Um, oh man, I find like a fucking half dollar in the, the sewer. How much is this kid making on his uh newspaper routes where he's like, Yeah, I can find a fucking half dollar, go to the the candy store, get like a shit ton of candy, but like yet he can't afford. Like they have to save weeks of tobacco money.
1: <laughs> I was gonna say, forget about that tobacco budget.
3: Yeah,
0: I don't. I don't want to rag on Grandpa Joe too much. There's moments <laughs> throughout that I think uh, we'll. I'll be celebrating him, but also taking him the task. So I say, let's. We'll give Grandpa Joe. Let him rest in the bed a little more. So after this opening scene where we meet the bucket family, we then cut to Charlie in a class being taught by an obnoxious British teacher uh, and it's here that we learn about the golden ticket scheme. This movie is so confusing with time and place, I think in a great way. There's American kids in this classroom. The movie looks like it was shot in like in Germany because it was shot in Germany like all the signs are in German, but there's like Americans and British and all sorts of nationalities. so it's just a really, I just think that adds to just like the, the unsettledness that this movie creates and sort of this vibe of, we don't really know kind of what's happening here, but eh, I thought this British teacher was pretty funny and it's kind of a ham-fisted way to explain, but I don't know if this is just the Gene Wilder effect of being in this movie, but it feels a little like Mel Brooksy with like, he just drags a kid in and he explains something and then the kid just goes away like this very critical plot moment. I think in other films that could be something I uh, drag it for, but in this, it just feels like in the spirit of the movie, all right. We just got to get the plot. We just drag this kid in and get him out, and then we got to cut to the rest of the film. Uh, so Wonka has announced globally that he has hidden five golden tickets in chocolate Wonka bars. Finders of the tickets will receive a factory tour and a lifetime supply of chocolate. Um, this is when the movie has many monta- several montages. Um, the first of the four golden tickets is found by a German boy named. Probably one of the best names in cinema history, Augustus Gloop. <laughs> um, the second, t- I'll just go through who wins. Uh, the second ticket goes to the spoiled English girl, Ruka Salt, with a wealthy father. Uh, from the United States, there's a constantly gum chewing girl named Violet Beauregard and a television obsessed boy uh, named Mike TV. Uh, and as each winner is announced on television, a sinister looking man appears to whisper to them. And so this is. I think when I was a kid, the part of the movie that I kind of glazed over a little, but as an adult, these montages of the world freaking out and getting insights into these kids who are going to win and these families that win these golden tickets, I just think is so incredibly uh, entertaining and how this Wonka scheme just takes over the whole world. And it feels a little bit like something, um, you know, this huge viral trend on the internet that everybody obsesses over that happens, you know, several times a year. So it just kind of was reminding me of those very modern vibes with just this one guy and this really (laughs) giving Wonka credit, this really clever marketing scheme to make millions and millions of dollars which we learn later is not his intention necessarily, probably, uh, but that's sort of gen- what the general public thinks. This kind of the scheme is behind the golden ticket.
2: So Yeah, like, as you said, Connor, like, everybody's talking about it. And one of my favorite scenes is when the guy is in, in the therapist's office and he's like, I keep having these dreams. And then the therapist goes, do you believe in one's dreams of the manifestation of insanity? And then the guy goes... But I have these dreams that I think that I have located the golden ticket. And then the therapist was like, tell me more. Where is it?
0: (laughs) Was that a hard cut? (laughs) And
1: there's one line in, uh, I wrote this one down because I was just dying watching it the other day, is uh, part of the newscast when it's talking about who will find the last ticket. Quote, who will the man be? And how long will the spirit of man hold up under the strain? (laughs) So
0: good. There are so many great lines in this movie and uh, that for sure is one of them. Uh, so our first winner is Augustus Gloop. Boy, this kid just shovels food down. And that's, he. I can't say he has much of a character beyond he just loves food. Um, there's a simplicity to Augustus. He is a, a gluttonous being, but he's a kid. And so he just, and his parents just let him eat pretty much whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Uh, with a hilarious moment where they're interviewing him at this Bavarian sort of restaurant uh and the dad's like oh mr gloop any comments and the dad just eats the mic head and then just cuts (laughs) like this movie uh day we were talking about this has just i i'm just was noticing the editing really for the first time when watching it for the podcast of where great comedic tie like physical comedic timing with the performances and great comedic timing uh with the editing. not a second is is um extended like every joke is punctuated pretty perfectly from what i remember yeah, it's drum tight editing in this movie all throughout. So the next one of Aruka Salt's um, "Daddy, I Want It Now" is very um, spoiled, rich kid type. Uh, the dad, uh, Mr. Salt, uh, is in the nuts business as he mentions later uh in the film and he has what reminds me of like les mis you have these working girls (laughs) like these uh employees these (laughs) and these like old timey dresses (laughs) and they mr salt has bought thousands and thousands of boxes of wonka bars and he's delayed production i think several weeks for his business because veruca has to get the golden ticket to go to wonka's factory um and the reward is just what an extra like pound on the paycheck? And so this movie just it's so has a really...
2: insignificantly small. It's like,
0: right.
2: girl, if you found the golden ticket, you probably should have just told no one go on that tour yourself and not <laughs> give it to the family.
3: But again, what is money in this universe? Because they were all like extra pound. Oh my god. Because remember, a half dollar gets you a shit ton of candy. I, I what is this?
1: It's also a world that we find out in one offhand line has 100 billion people in it.
2: (laughs) Honestly, this is like probably a like dystopic projection of like uber capitalism in like 200 years. (laughs) You know, like you have everyone obsessed with chocolate and there's like exploitive labor everywhere. And... And I also, back to whether Willy Wonka actually wanted to make billions and millions from this, as you said, Connor marketing scheme, I think he does. I think he may want to appear as just an artist creating chocolate and food, but I think deep down he's just like a money-making big boss at at his core.
1: I've got a Wonka theory that we'll get into later as far as the intentions Mm. behind the, uh, yeah,
0: but we'll, we'll get to that golden elevator, more like golden parachute. Am I right? Glass elevator. Damn it. I fucked up my own joke. Damn it. I fucked up my joke. Don't take it out, Dave. We'll just just keep rolling. Keep the cameras rolling. So next we meet uh, Violet Beauregard. Uh, Her dad is just hilarious. He's this used car salesman who takes this opportunity in the media to just sell his own, sell his own business. Iwanka, if you ever, if you ever find yourself in Montana, come stop by whatever his motor business is. Here's my card. We don't get too much on Violet right away, but she has frenemies pretty clearly. Um, she enjoys being in the limelight uh, and she loves chewing gum. That is her definitive personality. She just loves chewing gum. Uh, and then last we have Mike TV from Arizona. Uh, he just wants to watch TV, man. If zoomers in like 30, 40 years ever make a remake of Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. It's just going to be like this kid just, this, everyone's going to have, he's going to have an iPhone. Like that's just where my mind was going of like what a 21st century Mike TV would be like. Uh, and he loves guns. And his
1: name is Mike. TV. His name is Mike TV. <laughs> I feel like Veruca Salt has such a bite to it. And Augustus Gloop. Oh, wow, what a characteristic name. Who's this last kid?
0: Uh, Mike TV. <laughs> His destiny was a simple one, and he and he was born to live it. So those are cast of characters, but we'll learn more about them later. Um, I did mention that we see a sinister-looking man whispering to them. Um, this is incredibly creepy. I know 1971, this is, like, not the vibe, but this dude just, like, grabbing kids and whispering in their ears as the television camera zooms in. I, it just has, like, a creepy vibe to it.
2: It's so scary, and I, I have a Slugworth theory that because he's always there you know you're like oh he's magic so he suddenly appears i think that they planted the t- ticket or is that not even like is that just like a common theory
1: there's like a long game thing with him in the movie
2: no i know who he ultimately uh-huh. is but it isn't a big reveal that he intentionally planted the tickets across the world
0: Well, and I think that's another really fun part about this movie is that there can just be endless theories about it because the writers are like, oh, Slugworth's here. And that's probably how it is in the book. And maybe I've never read the book, don't know anything about it, but it just it gives a vibe of like this dude just knows everything like he just knows where everything's going to happen. We
2: ultimately get the big Slugworth reveal, but it never explains how he's like suddenly at the scene always. And he haunts my dreams i was always so i mean i'm like probably every kid was terrified of of the slug man
1: i totally forgotten about him and i was just like who is this guy wandering off like raiders of the lost ark what is this guy doing here and then i remembered at the end yeah
0: so we got slugworth we got our contestants um and throughout these montages we just see how the world is devolving into chaos the lengths that people will go to to find a golden ticket personal favorite vignette of mine um is We're somewhere, maybe America, and there's someone's husband gets taken hostage, and then the wife is so distraught, (laughs) the police have tapped the phone, you know, they're like, all right, like, it's going to be okay, we're going to get him back, and it's played so straight for, like, 90%, 95% of it, like, oh, what does he want, you know, oh, I'll do anything, anything to get my Henry back, and then it's like, oh, he's here, okay, what do you want, okay, it's like, what does he want, what does he want, it's drawn out, drawn out, it's like, your last box of Wonka bars. Perfect amount of pausing before she says, "Is that something to the effect of, well, Mrs. Whatever, give me a minute. How long? How long does he have? And then, how long does he? How long can he wait? And then cuts. She does not want to give up her box of Wonka bars. So that's a personal little favorite vignette of mine.
1: There's also this auction going on to sell off one of the last like remaining boxes and it's just like this, this skyrocketing people are just like bidding 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 and then the last shot is just uh the auctioneer kind of like turning just off camera to look at someone that we don't see and just says your majesty <laughs>
3: I feel like this is the mark of someone with a very good sense of humor just adding in these scenes that mean nothing they amount to nothing but they are just so fucking funny that like I can't imagine the film without them. Mm-hmm.
0: It's such a great example of world building. And then something that could feel just like exposition or something that you could be like in a bunch of newspapers spinning in the central, just telling what's happening in the world. This is like, I feel like a really great way to just show, not tell how the world is just evolving into chaos. And how long can the spirit of man withhold Wonka's marketing scheme? <laughs> uh, we get a few fake outs with Grandpa and Charlie. Um, which I think as a kid, I know, it was, oh, this is the Golden Ticket movie. Like, oh, he's going to get Oh, he doesn't get it. Uh, so there's a fake out where Grandpa Joe uses his tobacco money to buy uh, Charlie candy, hoping it'll be the Golden Ticket. How does Grandpa Joe buy this ticket? That's what mom- I was going to ask. How did he get this candy
1: bar? He's been faking it for 20 years. He's sneaking out at night buying chocolate for himself with his tobacco
0: money. You know, watching this made me think about the prestige uh, with the guy who pretends to be <laughs> a, um, a, a you know, an Oriental, an Oriental Chinese performer, quote unquote, of that time. And uh, he's always he's living the act. So maybe Grandpa Joe is like Christian Bale, and he's living the act. Um, so that was just making me think of that. Check out our Prestige episode.
1: This is another secret Grandpa Joe with just three fingers on the one hand.
0: <laughs> oh, how do they decide who gets to go to the factory?
1: That must have been really tough. Or which one gets hung at the end? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Somebody needs to call Christopher Nolan right now and be like, "We need a prestige Grandpa Joe, like Prestige Two, Grandpa Joe the Reckoning, or something like that."
3: <laughs> he would be like, "How Don't do you get Nolan. this
2: number?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Nolan goes, goes from uh, making this Oppenheimer movie he's working on with a million people to then Prestige Two, Grandpa Joe's Reckoning. <laughs> <laughs>
2: No one knows a grandpa good idea Joe. when he hears it. I think he'll, I think he'll fund this project.
0: Yeah, self-funded, nice. Um, so then it's this build-up. Oh, Charlie, this is your ticket. You're gonna get it, man. Grandpa Joe's just building up his hopes and dreams. Um, we get another fake-out where uh, it's his birthday of all days, and the whole family, the other grandpa and Grandpa Joe, once again, somehow mysteriously procure a chocolate bar uh, to give it to Charlie. Charlie's pretty with it. As a kid, like he seems to really understand the circumstances and understands his lot in life um, so much where he doesn't even have hope that this is the chocolate bar that has in it. Because he turns around, opens it. Oh, this is it. And then turns and says, gotcha. <laughs> just totally punking his whole family, who really talk- <laughs> <laughs> which is played for laughs. But I think it shows me as an adult how just with it this kid is, this 10, 11 year old is with just how the world works. And there's no way statistically, that he can get this ticket. We then get a really nice scene between Charlie and his mom. His mom sings the song Cheer Up Charlie, which in my opinion is probably the most forgettable song in the movie. It's really, I guess, just serves as a tone piece. This this song is really an example of poor choices of when to force songs into movies that don't really require it. This one's Cheer Up Charlie, you know, i don't know that's about all i have to say about cheer up charlie but any thoughts on these fake outs grandpa joe's duplicity cheer up charlie such a smear campaign you know this episode has been like three years in the making 150 some odd episodes coming for grandpa joe
3: i love like y- if we ever make merch we should have like grandpa joe truther like that should be something on a hat or
0: <laughs> i would wear that button i'd have that hat i'd wear that shirt So we get more subsequent news reports about a fifth ticket that has been found by a millionaire in Paraguay, causing Charlie to now fully lose hope. Whatever little hope he had is now fully gone. Um, The whole world is like, oh, it's over. The next day, Charlie is on his way home from school when he finds money in a gutter and he uses it to then buy and eat candy. And he's just chowing this candy down. He's like, life sucks I'm never going to be a winner. I know it, but let me just gorge myself on some candy like Augustus Gloop. But then with change, he buys a regular Wonka bar for Grandpa Joe. Yet another example of Charlie's uh, selflessness, which has already appeared numerous times throughout the movie. But when he could have just bought all the candy for himself to make himself feel better, he buys a candy bar for Grandpa Joe. And wouldn't you know it, that selfless purchase is the candy bar that has the golden ticket. So when he's walking home, he overhears that the millionaire has uh, foregoed, you know, uh, has forged. Sorry, this millionaire has forged the fifth ticket. Charlie has hope again. He then opens his Wonka bar and discovering the final ticket. And what a great sort of teasing out whether this chocolate bar actually has the golden ticket in it, where he peeks it open a little bit and then he sees it opens it up fully, and then he finds the golden ticket, which he really shouldn't have done because then he is mobbed by the crowd around the television, by the newspaper stand, and he's lucky someone didn't kill him. Like, <laughs> he very easily could have been trampled by this mob. And the unsung hero of the movie is his newspaper stand boss, who tells him, keep running, Charlie, and don't stop running till you get home!
2: Yeah, that movie could have ended 20 minutes in because that ticket was going to get stolen and then game over he yeah he should have definitely hit it under his sweater
1: yeah i feel like the the news the news guy's line of just like run charlie run and don't stop running till you get home is an iconic line because
0: otherwise this would have been a murder
2: right mur- right exactly yeah yeah
0: this would then be a true crime documentary 40 years later
3: i know there's a part of me that's like i want to see that movie
0: this is the this is the script that keeps on giving the movie that just can give us endless possibilities of teasing out this world and different scenarios so as he's rushing back he encounters and we get the uh the golden ticket theme as he's running back it's all hopeful and then he's introduced to a sinister looking man slugworth he introduces himself as slugworth and he offers a reward for a sample of wonka's latest creation the everlasting gobstopper. So this mysterious man has stepped out from behind the camera, has found Charlie right after he found the ticket, minutes after, and introduces this, I think, really necessary element in the movie of is are these kids going to steal what Wonka has? I think that really adds, I don't know if teeth is the right word, but there's a little, little something extra going on in here, choices that characters have to make. I assume this is in the book, but if it's not, it's a really great, I think, addition by the script. So he's running home, golden ticket in hand, and Charlie chooses Grandpa Joe as his chaperone, who excitedly jumps out of bed for the first time in 20 years, allegedly. And this is when Grandpa Joe starts singing, I've got a golden ticket. Um, Definitely one of the signature uh, songs of the movie. Now, I got a little theory about this song. That this song was when it was written. I'm gonna get I, I I could not find a whole lot about the writing process of the music. So correct me if someone else has found this and I'm wrong. This feels like a song that was written for Charlie. But some point during the script writing process or the filming, they gave it to Grandpa Joe. And there are some references later, and like there's some talking in the middle about like we're going to the factory, but it really feels like they gave they need to give Grandpa Joe a song, maybe. Peter Ostrom couldn't sing. I don't know, I Christine or you.
2: Peter Ostrom couldn't sing. You it. hear him duetting a little with Grandpa Joe, and he just can't do it. And I, I think your theory is probably correct because I distinctly remember this time watching being like, oh, wow, this is really Grandpa Joe's number. And Charlie is like, every time he's trying to harmonize with his grandpa, it just can't work. So I, I think you're on to something, Connor.
0: I think you know this song just makes Grandpa Joe look even worse. Well, That's not I your goal to go take far. it, Grandpa it makes Joe. Grandpa
2: Joe have a really cute little dancing number. He's got some fancy footwork. It's I, I thoroughly enjoyed this number.
3: I just also want to say, like, Charlie comes in and is like, no, Grandpa Joe, you're the one who's going to come with me. Grandpa Joe, who hasn't left a bed in 20 years. Meanwhile, his poor mother's over there like
2: (laughs) all I do
1: is laundry every day for tobacco money. But if you go, then who's going to get my tobacco while I'm in bed? I know that poor bitch, man. She really cannot catch a break.
0: She slaves for her for that family. I do, uh, Christine. I will say that this is an incredibly charming number, and an incredibly, incredibly charming scene. Setting aside the sinister elements of Grandpa Joe's duplicity, um, uh, I think this is an invention of the show right now. I'm not so sure that that's
1: actually in there at all.
2: All people are going to take from this episode is Grandpa Joe's duplicity. <laughs>
0: There's, uh, <laughs> you know, this has been simmering for a while. No, I, I you know, I'm being. <laughs> Flip it, uh, but just a little. Um, I think this is a Instagram, really
2: Instagram. <laughs> there should be no uh poster or anything. It's just come listen to Butter with That's episode about Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory and Grandpa Joe's duplicity <laughs> done.
0: <laughs> the truth is out there, listeners. Watch it for yourselves and we'll see. <laughs> uh so back to I've got a golden ticket, the actual scene itself and not my fan fiction. Uh, there's a really great one-shot where Grandpa Joe um the actor's name, uh, Jack Albertson does this, I think really great physical performance of like someone who hasn't stood up in 20 years. And like, he's rocking around, he has his cane. And this is all done in one shot as he makes his way around the room and falling back and falling forward. I think it's a really, a charming number definitely gives grandpa Joe gives him something to do. I think the performance is great. Ignoring the potential thematic questions I
1: have. It's a really impressive physical performance from the actor, because at the, at the time of this being filmed, he was nearly blind and they actually needed to use a red light to direct his attention to where people were talking while filming. So for him to cut it up like that, you know, not not to underestimate anyone of any disability, but like it's very impressive.
0: For sure. And he had to, to bring that physical of a performance just as a really stand out to the performance
3: Oh, you know what? Knowing this, knowing that, and then also how Charlie couldn't sing, it's it's a wonder that they weren't recast either of them. I feel like today they could be.
0: I think it's because this movie was just shot, just quick. Like we got to get it done. We got to get in. Got to get out. And it was filmed in in like southern Germany. Also, I mean
2: Tony Albertson, and I just looked this up on Wiki, is an Oscar. Tony and Emmy winning performer. So I think Damn. this movie was honored to have him on the bill because he was like a clearly a talented uh, stage performer and film performer. So I don't know about Charlie Bucket or the guy who
0: plays. What's his name? Peter o- Ostrom. Peter, Peter Ostrom. Ostra.
2: Although I love his performance. He's, I think he's tender. I think he really sort of channels that energy that that uh tender energy that a charlie bucket needs he's almost too per, like charlie's a little too perfect but i think that the kid that plays him really brings that that energy well
0: it feels very sincere and i think that's what prevents it from him for me from him feeling too perfect is that he's just so sincere and earnest he in helping it. his yeah, family it works All right, we've been going on for quite a bit now, and we haven't even gotten to the chocolate factory Factory, yet. That's how much there is to talk about in this movie. So fortunately, they got the ticket when they did because they have to go to the factory the next day. Uh, So the winners of the contest are all gathered at the factory to meet Gene Wilder's Wonka. He walks out slowly with a cane, Uh, when he nears the gate, his cane gets stuck and it looks like he's about to fall. And when he's looks like he's just about to hit the ground, he does a tuck and roll, jumps up to the applause of the crowd. Uh, now this scene, uh, which is another incredibly iconic moment was actually Wilder's idea. And this, you know, it had to be included or he'd walk from the project when the director responded, what do you want to do that for Wilder after Wilder told him the idea. He answered from that time on, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. And he was adamant that this had to be in the movie or he'd walk from the project. And that's just, Gene Wilder just got this role. Ignoring if it's true to how the book Wonka is like that is irrelevant. In my opinion, to this discussion, he nails this version of Wonka And I think that is at the heart of this movie of when are people lying? You know, when are their lies and when is their truth? When is their hope and when is their despair? I think it sort of all ties into this one moment right here. So a really great example of theme meeting action meeting character meeting actor, a real synthesis moment, uh, which is always wonderful to see.
3: It's So nice to know what hills people are willing to die on and how random they can be.
0: So Wonka then meets all the children. We get just little moments with them and You can tell that, you know, in Gene Wilder's very Gene Wilder way, he's very sarcastic with the children, with the parents. He leads them inside, and they have to sign a contract before the tour. The movie was already feeling kind of weird. This is when the movie really descends into weirdness. The contract is basically the size of a wall, and the font gets so small you can't even read it. The parents say, no, don't sign it, but all the children basically convince The other four children convince their parents to sign. When Grandpa Joe just lets Charlie potentially sign his life away. Just saying, I got we got nothing else to lose. Should I do it, Grandpa Joe? We got nothing else to lose. Sign away, Charlie. Just saying. So then the group is led into a hallway with no apparent exit. It's a very tight room. Everyone starts freaking out. Then Wonka opens the door that they just came through. They enter a hallway that shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And so once again. We can't really trust what we see. Uh, and then finally, there's a musical lock and we get into the chocolate room. Any thoughts on sort of initial interactions here with the cast and Wonka?
2: The scene is so cool. Is It's, I guess, conceptually kind of simple. Okay, they're just going to walk towards, you know, a hallway that gets smaller and it plays with proportion and everything, but... It's just, it's so fun. And like you said, it sta- it sets the stage for just not knowing, yeah, what's gonna happen and tricks and uh, illusions and plays with perspective are, are, are to come throughout the rest of their adventure through Wonka
0: Land. Some magical ideas we might've covered last month. Be sure to check out our magical movies episodes. <laughs> So now we see the chocolate room. This tiny door opens up to this huge like 12 foot tall door and the cast walks out and they see the also iconic chocolate room where pretty much everything is edible. Everything can be eaten. Um, One great sort of trivia moment about this scene is that this room was kept a secret from the actors And so when they opened the door, you're seeing the actor's genuine reaction to this enormous playground of chocolate for the first time. So I thought that was a pretty cool thing that they did. I think nowadays this room looks a little just okay. (laughs) Something's a little off about the color of that chocolate, which I actually have a note about the Chocolate River too. Um, 150,000 gallons of water, real chocolate and cream. Um, And they had to change the formula for the river because originally this concoction um, was turning blood red. So because of the cream mixture, it then started to spoil by the end of filming and smelled terribly. They tried their best with this very kind of amazing effect. I think it looks pretty good, but definitely um, shows just its age a little. But it's a real river, which probably it is not in the Tim Burton movie.
2: No, that's the thing. Like most of the stuff in the Burton, I mean, okay, Burton does practical effects in some time, whatever, he can do it. But like, yeah, a lot of it is CGI. And you can tell in the original Wonka when Wonka's pulling from like the uh, buttercup bush and drinking tea from the bloom of the buttercup that it clearly was not on the bush, that it's a separate distinct material. You know, you can see through it. But I don't know, call me, you know, old, but I just would much prefer every time to look at something that is a practical effect than something that's just con- like made from CGI. Yeah, I mean, it's a factory. You can tell that it was a set in a factory and I had no problems with that. It's magical, just the same.
1: Yeah, just it being tactile, it being, you know, physically voluminous, it being something the they actors can interact with uh beyond the scope of you know the convenience of uh of, of cgi today so yeah i i would say that though it, it's a little shaggy after all these years it's really nice to walk into a shaggy physical space that they took the time to make
3: yeah i mean i, I think that would, honestly i think that it looks great um even 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 now and something that this movie will always have above the burton one is that It lacks Johnny Depp, and I think that uh, that's (laughs) wonderful. Already a leg up.
0: And so we are then introduced to another iconic song, Pure Imagination, um, which Wilder sings. He's leading the group of kids and family, their parents, uh, down the steps, kind of starting and stopping. Not quite sure kind of what his game is. You're never really quite sure what's going on with Wonka, but he seems really sincere in singing this song about um, living in the imagination, letting imagination thrive. We don't necessarily have to get into the potentially darkish themes of living in an imagination and living in a world of pure candy and living in a space like this. Uh, but Wonka seems incredibly sincere in this moment and, and the joy of sort of sharing this with people for the first time ever or you know, certainly in years.
2: I think when that song is first introduced, it does such a great job of having two like, like musical lines going on. There's that initial like, do, do, do. That's actually kind of terrifying, like really terrifying those three note introductions. And then he goes into sing the whole world of pure that whole other melody. But like that, the first sort of lines of music that introduce that song add that really kind of dark undertone, which I think is such a great way of, once again, creating a tone of uncertainty as to like what Wonka's really thinking and like the type of vibe he's really trying to set in that, uh, in, on the tour. Because I find that song not soothing. I find that song also unsettling.
0: Yeah, what does it mean to live in a world of pure imagination?
2: I mean, it sounds fun, but coming from him, I don't know. We have Augustus falling into the chocolate river, and then just it's a blink and you miss it moment. But Gene Wilder's just like, oh, help.
0: Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> help. Police. Murder. <laughs> I feel like I get a different read on his Wonka I feel like every time I watch it Of like how much apathy does he have And so basically in this room We're introduced to sort of the dangers That can that the visitors are going to face And we're also introduced to Wonka's workforce uh, The little people as this description pulled it uh, The Oompa Loompas Another incredibly iconic part of this movie um, And the Oompa Loompas are from Lupaland And Wonka saved them they're a mysterious force. And then they also act as a Greek chorus inside of this film. And so this movie is just operating on just a lot of levels. And there's child endangerment as well. Augustus Gloop mm-mm, plants, candy plants, candy trees, those are not good enough for him. He digs his hands into the chocolate river, which no human hands can touch. And then he falls in. Looks like someone could have saved him, but they just let Augustus Gloop fall in. I guess he. He can't really swim at all because he gets sucked up by the suction of the filtration system. This, I think, is just incredibly horrifying. And he's the first to be eliminated. Yeah, so right away, we're just, Augustus, he's gone. First 10 minutes in the room, can't make it.
1: I think uh, the the children are eliminated in the order they're introduced in as well, correct? That is correct. Yeah,
0: And there's a little bit of play, too, with their... It's not really seven deadly sins. There's a little bit of that, but sort of what their main failing, character failing, is, is what does them in in the end. It's kind of something going on there too.
3: Or it's uh, like just yeah. that they're kids,
0: <laughs> you know. Or it's just, just that they're, just
1: kids. they're kids. And this, yeah, uh, uh, this factory would not pass an OSHA inspection. <laughs> which also, by the way, really quickly, as as concerns the uh, the Oompa Loompas, his workforce, which he says he rescued from this this place. I forget what kind of what is it again. Loompa Land. Oh, Loompa Land, well, well, there you go. I, I think maybe like the last fiscal quarter before this movie takes place, the IRS was like, Do, I understand you rescued these Oompa Loompas. Do they have work visas to be here? And then Wonka was like, well, uh, you know what, uh, a kid's gonna own my factory. In a couple months, I'm just gonna send out a bunch of tickets. Some kid's gonna own my factory. I'm gonna wash my hands of this legally. It's gonna be off my hands.
2: Excellent point, Dave. That is <laughs> that is truly what's going on. You have like vile intense violations of labor rights and exploitation and then just writing it off on a poor kid that's about to inherit the company. Yes, yes. Manka and that explains yeah not- why
1: why on this tour it's an unsafe factory and he's just like, "Well, not going to be my problem in the next few hours." <laughs>
2: And the true test is any kid that can like be okay with this and be excited by this environment and survive is truly (laughs) the new business partner or inheritor of my company.
0: It's the master of class warfare. That's true. With all that said, I don't think that's (laughs) the intention of the film, but that's once again, but I think it's so wonderful about this movie is that it really just like an ogre, like onions, there's just layers to it that I think you can almost, (laughs) say, your face, almost endlessly peel back. So we're then also introduced to the first Oompa Loompa song, who sings about the failings of the children, as I mentioned, sort of a Greek chorus kind of way, and introduced to a new stylistic element into this movie, with text popping up on screen, on the screen, cutaways, follow along singing. So what's supposed to have the vibe of like a sing-along song for kids is about these child characters potentially dying just like very just interesting vibe going on here with these oompa loompas
1: and it's with the superimposed text that would looks pretty in place in like an adam west batman episode which is great
0: Uh, We're then treated to probably my favorite scene in the whole film, uh, the riverboat ride. I still don't quite know how to wrap my head around the scene or what its exact kind of function is, uh, but it's essentially uh, to leave the chocolate, the chocolate room. They board a boat, go down the the chocolate river in a technicolor nightmare with disturbing imagery, vaguely threatening songs, threats of vomit from uh, one of the characters. And it's sort of a real descent into hell kind of vibe of in a in an Ari Aster movie this would have a totally um feels like it fits into something of hereditary or midsummer kind of vibe
1: or it almost feels like they're just taking a ride through a tunnel that happens to be projecting like the end of 2001 space odyssey (laughs) and gene wilder's just flipping out and supposedly some of the uh child actors uh during the shooting of this were so frightened by uh wilder's performance that they
0: started getting really uneased it's uneasing it is very disturbing. And for a kid's movie, it's like, what is this doing in here? I don't know if I have a definitive answer or, like, in my mind of why this scene's there. Maybe it's just tone setting um, or giving us some insights into Wonka's true personality. Or maybe he's trying to unsettle the kids. But the imagery is incredibly effective and evocative.
2: Yeah, it's funny because, like, the, the, the Oompa Loompa songs are sort of, like, the sort of moral, you know, it's very like moral, you know, this is what happens when you don't do this or when you do this or, you know, when you're greedy and don't listen to your parents or whatever. But I think Sammy said something to the effect earlier. It was like, kids also will, like be kids. <laughs> and it, like <laughs> it, when confronted with odd situations and unfamiliar environments, kids are going to like do shit. And this tunnel scene seems like just totally upending all of the children's like sense of like reality in like a completely unfair way. Like, yeah, just like throwing them off and, and creating these terrifying scenarios for them. I mean, the kids are little shits too, definitely, but it's also kind of right. Unfair, like (laughs) how much of a hell they're being taken through and then ushered into another candy filled, exciting room. And it's like, Wonka is just loves fucking with them. And I Connor, you're like, I don't know if the movie is intentionally doing this. I think the movie is definitely just as Wonka is fucking with the children. I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was trying to set that, that une- like tone of unease
0: constantly. For sure. Definitely. But let's eject ourselves out of this, um, the sent in the hell into the next room. it's, Similar vibe to the chocolate room, but it's much quirkier, I guess, let's say. um Where there's, it's his like experiment, it's like his lab, his like experimental lab, where there's all these, it feels like very Dr. Seuss like, all these different who's it's and what's it's and machines and to make, you know, this, you know, this gum that is all the different flavors. You know, breakfast, like, oh, well, you throw eggs in and throw bacon and porks Like he throws a shoe into one of the vats to give uh, the candy a little extra kick. So it's sort of like the rules of reality are not present inside of Wonka's factory. Um, So the chocolate room, very awe-inspiring and optimistic. This room, similar energy, but just things are really off. And the rules of the world don't really apply here. Uh, Violet is the next child who's eliminated, who turns into a blueberry after eating gum that she's not supposed to. That really felt like a trap. Laid by Wonka, like the the chocolate river. That you, I think in the court of law, be viewed as accidental. This pretty felt like <laughs> <word of law. laughs> Felt like Wonka really just holding out. You know, it's like I dare you to take this gum, and then it always
2: messes up on the desserts. You're, it's a one hundred. It's one hundred percent a trap. Intra- it's like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, it's. Mm.
0: And so she turns, I think a really great looking effect expands to be like a blueberry. And she's wearing this like blue jumpsuit and her face gets all blue and she turns into this giant ball. The Oompa Loompas roll around and she's not filling with air. She's filling with juice and has to get pressed in the juice, the juicer room uh, before she explodes. So pretty as the Oompa Loompas once again sing their moral song. Violet is violet. You're turning violet, Violet. Her dad says, which is another one of my favorite lines from the movie, uh, is rolled away. So any thoughts, as we've been going now for over an hour, any thoughts on Violet Beauregard's demise?
3: Fucked up.
1: Fucked up.
0: I think we missed an opportunity
1: handing the keys to Burton on this instead of Cronenberg.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) I I would love to just get a peek into that alternate universe. That would be
2: terrifying, 100%.
0: Uh, and one, before we move on, one really important moment in this scene, um, we are introduced to the everlasting gobstopper. She gives to all the kids, and now you have the promise to never give it to anybody. Once again, trapping these kids, I think, setting them up for failure. And so now we're sort of like, okay, now the, the trap is here for these kids to fall into, because Slugworth has bribed, you know, has sort of convinced all of them, or tried to convince all of them to steal this and give it to him. Uh, and it's a candy that never goes bad that just keeps lasting forever and ever, which for a business-savvy man like Wonka it doesn't seem like a good idea, but such is life. So after Violet's uh, downfall, Charlie and Joe, Uncle Joe, Grandpa Joe, uh, enter the fizzy lifting drinks room, and they sample beverages uh, against Wonka's orders. Once again, Grandpa Joe's evil influence seeping into poor, innocent Charlie Bucket's life and says, oh, oh it'll be fine. So they keep floating up in a really great looking effect scene where they just keep floating higher and higher into the room, but they're going to hit a fan at the very top and be decapitated and just torn to shreds. Pretty gruesome threat. Uh, then it's revealed that if they burp past gas, then they fall back down, uh, which Sam reminded me of Mary Poppins similar where they're having like the tea party up, up, floating above so that kind of was like ah, oh, some mary poppins vibes happened uh, a few times like mary,
2: poppins, like mary poppins that scene looks so good like the harness where like all of it i mean you can clearly tell they're suspended but the way it's shot the bubbles uh and then when they're coming back down when they do flips it all looks great so thank god grandpa joe and charlie drank the fizzy drink and got a little bit of adventure for themselves I
0: also like this
2: scene because it's like they're not infallible too, you know, like mm -hmm. they're tempted just as much as everybody else, you know, else is. And they're going to have a little adventure.
0: You can't resist. How can you resist? Next is Veruca, who I didn't really write too much about this scene. They're these golden gooses and you don't tell them that it's not Easter because then they'll stop producing, which I thought was just kind of a funny little moment. Um, Who then sort good eggs and bad eggs. Faruka Salt has a song about I, I want it now. Uh, another kind of forgettable musical moment.
2: I think her performance is so good. I think the the actor that plays Faruka Salt is wonderful. I think she's one of the best of the children. I mean, you know, she's playing a fun character who's just horrible and greedy and selfish. But I thought her number, I thought her whole performance throughout is so good and so fun.
0: I guess what I meant by forgettable is I kind of feel like it hurts the pacing of the movie a little bit. Maybe not the right word, but it feels like all the kids should get like, I guess, structurally, it's an interesting place to give just her the song. But I think once again, a sign of just lots of movies doing things like this where they're sort of, oh, we'll, we'll put a song in here because it's a good performer. The song is fun. So I guess that's that does, was not the right word. but I,
2: Yeah, I think, Connor, that is more the way it was. It was like, all right, who among our cast can sing, dance, we'll work around what they can and can't do. And yeah, sure. It's like, why wouldn't all the kids get songs then? Why does she just, yeah, like, she could clearly sing. Uh, but I, I I thought she gives a pretty standout
0: performance. For sure she does. And I think generally all these kids are, are pretty good. Uh, Augustus doesn't get much screen time. I, I Apparently he really didn't speak any English. So he's just, you know, doesn't have too much to work with, but he's certainly a memorable. I think all these kids are fairly memorable. And she ends on, there's an egg sorter for good eggs and bad eggs. She stands on the egg sorter. She's a bad egg, gets sent down into the furnaces. And there's a 50-50 chance that the furnace she falls into is off because they sort of clean them every other day. So another, and the father goes in also being a bad egg to try to save her. Also a dark moment in the movie.
1: This is one of the ones where even, yeah, even with hindsight, like, yeah, this one's really, it's it's a furnace. They're diving into a furnace and with a 50-50 chance of not being killed. It's pretty intense at this point.
0: And it feels like this film has vibes of like old school fairy tales where, like, people get killed and murdered, and the Pied Piper, I don't know. I don't, th- I don't know if you can draw much similarities between the Pied Piper uh, and Wonka. I love the story of the Pied Piper, and there's a lot of really interesting versions of it.
1: Or, obviously, Hansel and Gretel, you know, eating... Hansel the Gretel. Yeah, there's a lot of Grimm's, gr- literally Grimm's stuff in here.
0: <laughs> so, next, we head to a really stark room. Uh, where we meet Mike TV's. And this is such an interesting stylistic change of where everything is sort of technicolor and bright. We then get into the stark white room where everyone has to wear white and we are introduced to Wonka Vision, which feels like a very, like, I love it, a very like mid 20th century kind of concept, fantasy or like sci-fi-ish concept to put. Like, oh, if we can send signals across television waves, well, I'm going to send candy across those same waves too, and tear them apart into a million pieces and put them back together. Um, which then, you know, a huge bar then becomes a bar that's inside of a TV, which you can then pull out and eat. Mike TV destined to be his fall, <laughs> wants to be on TV. And he is successfully the first person to be transmitted via television waves, but has shrunk to be the size of, I guess, like your phone, essentially.
2: This also felt very prestige when we were watching. I feel like I watched these kind of near to one another, and I was like, this would make a great prestige Wonka mashup with my TV <laughs> trying to do the transporting man.
0: <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Wow, That yeah, you're so right. Wow, that's, that's so funny.
1: It's a little funny to me how much this this sequence stands out by contrast to the rest of the film, because the rest of it is this sort of like fantastical interpretation of not only a land of like whimsy but a land of technology so for it to include television as like a really prominent futuristic feature and our interaction with it as very futuristic in this way i think hasn't perhaps held it is more an affect of its era than it has held up as far as it being you know uh consistent with the feel of the rest of the movie but It's not a bad sequence at any rate. It's interesting, but yeah, it feels uh, strangely out of place, I think, with time.
2: I I don't know. I thought the concept is pretty prescient. I mean, clearly it was predicting television as a space where you could literally pull out physical objects, but I think it was projecting to a future that's like TV being full of advertising. I mean, it was in the 1970s for sure, but I think... It also just reinforces this idea of TV as a space for product and, you know, turning product over for a consumer market. And I think that that seems pretty spot on or any media as like a space to sell a product in a consumer market. And Mike TV just found himself as the product then. (laughs) which he seems to be pretty jazzed about. That's what I love about the scene. It's like all the other kids are like, oh my God,
0: what's gonna happen to me? And Mike is like, I'm really down with this. He does. I do love the energy that he gives in the scene. All right, so we are concluding our tour. At the end of the tour, Charlie and Grandpa Joe, now the only remaining guests, Ask about what will become of the other kids. Wonka assures them that they will be fine uh, before Wonka then hastily retreats to his office without awarding them the promised lifetime supply of chocolate. Uh, Grandpa Joe, he's pissed. For Charlie, this is just another addition to the long list of disappointments he's had to endure in his short life. But Grandpa Joe is like, I'm not going to stand for this. You promised us a never-ending supply of chocolate, a lifetime supply of chocolate? And gosh darn it, my boy grand boy is gonna get it. So Grandpa Joe then, you know, they kind of burst into his office to inquire, where Wonka angrily informs them that they have violated the contract when they stole the fizzy lifting drink and are thereby forfeiting their prize. Now, up until this point, we assumed that Wonka didn't know that they were in that, you know, messed with the fizzy lifting drink because they, I guess, went their absence went unnoticed for the however long they were gone, they catch back up with the tour. And so Gene Wilder gives one of my favorite lines in the whole film, you lose. Good day, sir. (laughs) Um, My wife and I just say that to each other just all the time. It's just a favorite in our household. And there's also a moment in Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Captain Hoyt says it as well, which I thought was, took took me by surprise, but that's a, a tangent. Thoughts on this office where everything is cut in half, every piece of paper, the desk, statues, paintings, it's Otherwise, a normal-looking office, except for every single object, is just cut in half.
2: It looks awesome. It's also, once again, scary, because you're really in the Wonka inner sanctum. You're in Wonka's <laughs> personal office, which you can't get any more like spatially into the Wonka psyche than his office. And, of course, everything is split in half. And it creates a real surreal vibe. It re- It works. It looks awesome.
0: Apparently, this was the decision by the director... Because, well, if it just takes place in an office, that doesn't feel very Wonka-like. And so, he may, apparently, he made the decision to just have everything be cut in half, just to make it Wonka-like, which I think is just kind of hilarious.
1: Also, not really, not for nothing, we haven't really talked about Wilder uh, in depth. In, in, in... See, someone's upset about it. Um, in terms of his performance in this movie, and he turns it, I mean, uh, for me, Wilder's like, you know, an all-timer. He's kind of a national treasure. Everything I've seen him in, I've enjoyed him in. but. This one is like out of the park. It's really embodying, as he intended, like this duality of uh, the the earnest showman with this undercurrent of his own ulterior motives, uh, whether that be <laughs> be um, you know weeding out the correct child or dodging the IRS. I guess is up to us. But there definitely seems to be yeah this this complexity to him, while he is in effect a tour guide. So it, it's a really interesting way. F- It's a really interesting choice to interject that persona and that like functional profession with that much depth and mystery. And I I think he really brings it to light in an amazing way. And I think it's perhaps second only to young Frankenstein for me, for him, as far as his all time best.
2: He's like a physical performer and the delivery of his lines are always varied and so fun and unexpected, but he's also like an eye performer. Do you like know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you watch his eyes, and he's doing something very different than what he's saying. And in his face, it's not necessarily like overly animated facial expressions, but there's some sort of element in his eyes that it's like, "Ooh, are you a trickster? Are you know what's what's going on?" Yeah, that perform. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think Dave, you summed up his performance so well. Because um, yeah, Wilder's embodiment of Wonka is is unique and one for the books
0: and it's a performance that I think I just glean more and more details and specificity from he's Wilder's just operating on some wholly other level that I think just keeps paying off the more if you rewatch this movie and thinking about what's going on in Wonka's mind and Wilder's mind as well in this really captivating performance that I think you guys have summed up really well which we could probably spend an hour talking about just his performance as Wonka alone, maybe a part two. Just kidding. <laughs> so Joe, we're wrapping up here. Uh, grandpa Joe then denounces Wonka suggests that Charlie gives Slugworth the everlasting gobstopper as retaliation. I'm not going to knock grandpa Joe on this one. That's fair. I think that's fair. Charlie has the right to do that. I suppose so there's um, a
1: bit of a broken contract at this point on
0: Wonka's part. So yeah, there's sort of free agents now. Yeah, you know what? You know, Grandpa Joe's just trying to survive and do best for Charlie. You know, kudos for him, I think. But Charlie, out of the goodness of his heart and ignoring the influence of Grandpa Joe, decides to return the everlasting gobstopper out of just the kindness of his own heart because he knows it's not right to steal. All of a sudden, like a switch flipping, Wonka joyously declares that Charlie's the winner and he knew that it was going to be him all along. Then Slugworth comes out given like the best cinematic thumbs up I think I've ever seen because the actor did not really speak much English. So he was a German actor. And so I think he just, they gave a thumbs up at the end.
1: Terminator 2 could probably give that a run for its money, but yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Slugworth, not actually Slugworth. Um, he was a plant trying to trick these kids into seeing who actually has the best morals, because who has the best morals and the best spirit and the biggest access to their imagination can have the chocolate factory. Um, so this is just morality test. Charlie has passed. Uh, The trio, Grandpa Joe, Wonka, Charlie, then enter the Wonka Vader, a multi-directional glass elevator that flies out of the factory. During their flight, Wonka tells Charlie that he created the contest to find someone worthy enough to inherit his factory. And so when he retires, he will give it to Charlie and his family. And the glass elevator takes off, joyous music plays, everyone there's a great just quick moment of charlie holding on to the side of the elevator as it's shaking he has this huge smile on his face uh and he's the winner he now inherits this factory and we see the elevator take off and the movie end not
1: before though at one point as the elevator is rising walk is kind of just like i don't know i've never tried this like this before and grandpa just like but it's made of glass are we all gonna die so there's still even in this climactic resolution. There's still this menace of like, I don't know, maybe we're all gonna be
0: killed. Never want to drop the menace. Do
2: you guys know what's in the sequel? I think the sequel is something called like Charlie in the Glass Elevator or something.
1: So they- I guess if we...
2: The book, I mean, not the movie.
1: Because I've never heard of anything like this. Yeah, it?
2: I think there's it's a the book, book sequel, okay. so I guess we'll know. like all the answers maybe lie in the second book as to whether <laughs> when Charlie starts going through
1: the cooked books,
2: <laughs> leaves Charlie with some real, real bad paperwork. Oh, poor kid. He's only nine or something. <laughs> That's a lot.
0: Grandpa, Joe,
1: thought- he help me with this.
0: No, I'm going yeah, back Grandpa to bed <laughs> <laughs> for another twenty <laughs> like, years.
1: <"Nah." laughs>
0: I never thought my life would be anything more than bankruptcy. Oh my gosh. Yes.
2: Connor, you need to write the true story of Charlie and the Charlie,
0: Charlie and the crippling debt.
2: Yeah, seriously. Oh,
0: well, that is Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. We've really covered a lot. This is, I'm, I'm just thrilled to bring one of my favorite all time movies to the group. Really love this discussion and the truth is out there about Grandpa Joe if you just watch and listen. It's there. <laughs> Any final thoughts on Willy Wonka and the Choppa Factory before we zip off into the atmosphere?
1: If you somehow missed it all this time, check it out.
0: Yeah, a true, a true classic that is is worth revisiting from time to time. And if you've never seen it and to listen to this whole episode, um, it's definitely still very just lots of treasures to behold, even if you know the plot. Well, I think that wraps up Willie Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Thank you so much for those who are listening. Uh, thank you so much, Sam, Dave, and Christine, for this really wonderful discussion. Uh, be sure to check out all the other wonderful podcasts on the Movie John Podcast Network, uh, including Killer Bees uh, by former Butter with Bat co-host Tori and her partner Garrett. Really wonderful podcast, as are all the podcasts in the Movie John Podcast Network, including the podcasts about Formula One racing. One day we'll have to do a crossover with that. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, F- Formula One movie. Um, it's got to happen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Butter That One, Facebook and Instagram at Butter That, and you can send us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Is Grandpa Joe a fraud? Is he the hero of the story? Please, please, please let us know in email. And if you think I'm wrong, let me know. I'm more than happy to hear about how wrong that I am in emails, I'd be happy to read that aloud. Uh, Or if you have praise or thoughts. I also forgot to mention uh, that we can now be rated on Spotify as well. So if you feel the need to drop us a review, an honest one, a glowing one, want some criticism, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Spotify can now, uh, you can now write podcasts on Spotify. So it's just right on the main podcast feed, you'll see a little rating area. Uh, and you can drop us a rating and a review there. So if you do that, be really much appreciated. And we'd be more than happy to read it out on the podcast if we can. Well, have a good whatever. Beware of men wearing purple coats and, um, you know, grandpas with ill intentions. And uh, enjoy your ride in the great glass elevator that is uh, the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Wow, <laughs> uh, real stuff right there.
0: Bring it home. I don't know if yeah. that's an appropriate metaphor, but it felt right in the moment. So I'm just going to stick it out.